Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, child and adolescent psychotherapist and clinical psychologist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organisation that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and the wider community. In these podcasts, we will be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioural and quick fix based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families and the broader network the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. You will also be able to access the references mentioned here. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Nick Midgley, who is based in the UK. Nick is a child and adolescent psychotherapist and professor of psychological therapies with children and young people at Anna Freud Center a Child Mental Health Training and Treatment Centre and University College London. Nick was also, until earlier this year, the Academic Programme Director for the Psychotherapy Doctorate in Child and Adolescent Psychotherapy at University College, where he also runs a research lab called CHAPTER, I hope that's correct, the Child Attachment and Psychological Therapies Research Unit. Welcome, Nick. As I mentioned to you when I read your extensive CV, I cannot fathom how you find time to breathe, as what I've just described barely scrapes the surface of your many research projects and therapeutic undertakings. To start with, however, I'd like to ask you how you came into child psychotherapy. I'm aware that you commenced your education studying English language and literature at Oxford University, where you had the beginning of what could have been a glittering career as a writer or an academic in English literature. How did you make the transition or leap into child psychotherapy? Thanks, Ruth. It's really nice to be here. I appreciate you inviting me. Um, yeah, I mean, as you say, I, I did come to this work somewhat later in my life. I think um, child psychotherapy wasn't really a field that I, I was even aware of when I was growing up. I think even when I was at university, I, I didn't know that such thing as a child and adolescent psychotherapist existed. Um, so it was really in my late 20s. I'd been living in Japan for a few years um, and I came back to the UK and really wasn't quite sure what direction I wanted to take my life in at that point. Um, but I had I'd worked with children and I'd always loved working with children. And I'd also been very interested in psychoanalysis. I'd come across psychoanalysis probably more in the context of my study of literature rather than a clinical context. And I really, um, as, as life does to you, I stumbled across a, a new master's course that had just been set up um, between the Anna Freud Centre and UCL. And I just thought, gosh, that, that looks so interesting. And it brings together things that I've been interested in for a long time. So I, I signed up for this master's course, not honestly knowing that much about the field. Um, and that year was just, it was an incredible experience. And I, during that year, I heard many child psychotherapists, particularly those in training, speaking about their clinical work. Um, and I just thought, you know, this, this sounds like an extraordinary work to do, um, work which is a real privilege to do this type of work, but also work that I realised would intellectually challenge me it would emotionally challenge me um, it would be a field where I would never stop learning um, and so I made that decision to go on from there to do the, the the training as a child psychotherapist that's very very interesting but I think you're still you still have a foothold in literature I, I gather you've become a playwright or you've you've actually had a play performed uh, yes, so I mean, I, writing has always been part of my life as well. Whether it's um, academic writing or poetry or, or theatre, I kind of grew up around the theatre as well, so that was part of my my childhood. Um, and uh, just last year was the um, 
uh, an anniversary of James Joyce and um, and his book Ulysses, and I'd become fascinated about the relationship between James Joyce and his brother, who was called Stanislaus. So I wrote a radio play about this relationship between these two brothers, um, which obviously also draws on my my interests from from psychology and my personal life as well. Um, and luckily, it was it was commissioned by uh, by the radio station in Ireland, and it was produced to coincide with the anniversary of of the book as well. Oh, that's wonderful! So so interesting. I mean, just as a little aside, I gather a lot of people who are child psychotherapists have studied English or English literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I confess that I did as well, but um, <laughs> not in the not to the great heights though. So, it's interesting. I mean, I do think I don't know what your experience is, but you know, as far as literature, studying literature is about m- meaning making and understanding yes. human experience, human psychology, but also how do we make sense of uh, of others? How do we make sense of the world? It does feel it's not the only preparation for um, child psychotherapy, but I think it can be a very good one. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, We'll be talking about your research as a child and adolescent psychotherapist that is underpinned in the UK by a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic orientation. Given that we're based in Australia, it can be helpful to point out that the title Child and Adolescent Psychotherapist in the UK is a protected title under the National Health Service. And given that cognitive behavioural approaches are very much to the fore in Australia, in both clinical practice and in research, where it is considered often solely to represent what is evidence-based, it would be interesting to hear from you about the psychodynamic or psychoanalytic perspective that informs both the trainings and the research with which you are involved. Yes, I I think you're right. When I I travel to other parts of the world, I do realise that probably the UK is quite unique in having this separate profession um, of psychoanalytic child psychotherapy. And as you say, it's it's a separate profession. It's also recognised by the National Health Service, the NHS, um, and perhaps most unusually, it is publicly funded, the training of child psychotherapists in, in the UK. I think my my understanding of the reasons for that is probably to do with the history, the fact that both Anna Freud and Melanie Klein were based here in London, um, and neither of them were psychologists. So I think in the post-war years, when the National Health Service was being set up and the professional bodies were forming, in a way, many other countries, psychoanalysis and child psychotherapy has been a sort of an offshoot of clinical psychology. But I think in the UK, a decision was made to keep child psychotherapy as a separate profession from the psychologist. So we're not part of, um, of, of the British Psychological Society. And I think that sort of that's had strengths and weaknesses. I mean, it, it's definitely protected a psychoanalytic perspective um, in our public services and in our training. But one of the, the sort of costs of that, I think, was that child psychotherapy has been outside academia. So for most of the, the last 50, 60 years, there's been very few links between child psychotherapy and the academic world in the UK, including research. So my training, I, I trained at the Anna Freud Centre. Um, and I think Anna Freud was slightly unusual in, among the psychoanalysts of her generation, that she was actually quite interested in research. She was quite open to uh, collaborations with the researchers. So when I was training, um, my teachers included people like Peter Fonagy, Miriam and Howard Steele, Mary Target, who were all uh, psychoanalysts or child psychotherapists, but also attachment and uh, um. researchers, psychoanalytic researchers. And they were developing their ideas about mentalizing, reflective functioning at the time. So I think um, I was probably only the second year where the training of child psychotherapists became a doctoral course at UCL. So I had no background in research, but it meant that we were required as part of our training to also have a research element to it. And kind of to my surprise, rather than finding this a kind of a, a conflicting approach, I actually found that this combination of research and clinical practice really was very enriching for me um, and in my own doctoral research, which 
I can tell you about if if if, if you want. It, it sort of it made me actually quite excited about the interaction between these two. Yes, I mean I'd absolutely agree with that, but I also wonder whether. Uh, one of the things that we, in a way, take for granted, having trained in the UK, is the value of the psychodynamic or psychoanalytic approach, where in working with children, particularly children and adolescents, and I think to some extent with adults as well, and I know this from the training programs that I've run, that people wouldn't be considered to be uh, fit for practice, really, if they didn't have access to a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic approach. I mean, would you say that that is largely true in the UK? Because that is, I mean, that's certainly what is true of the uh, of all the child psychotherapy trainings. Yeah, I I don't think I would say that's true in the UK mm. today. Um, I think you know, like like most parts of the world, um, the cognitive behavioural approach is by far the most dominant approach. Um, many. For example, clinical psychology trainings in the UK don't include any psychoanalytic component at all. So in a sense, I think the psychoanalytic perspective isn't embedded in child mental health practice. But then there is this standalone profession, child psychotherapy, which is absolutely a psychoanalytic approach. So um, rather than embedded across, it's held to some degree by this one professional group which um uh, you know at its best then can allow that to be part of a multidisciplinary conversation and discussion but is always at risk of being marginalized and again that's that's one way in which research comes into that whether whether the psychoanalytic pro approach can provide the kind of evidence that will justify it being at the table and part of multidisciplinary teams. Yes, yes, I think that's absolutely crucial. And that leads me to the next question, which is what is your approach to the training of child psychotherapy at University College in London? And, and in particular, how have you made it part of a doctoral program that has a substantial research element? Mm. So the the training that I did, the um the Freudian training actually closed about 15 years ago. So for a number of years, um, UCL was not involved in the training of child psychotherapists. And then about 10 years ago, um, we were approached by the independent child psychotherapy training, which had existed for about 30 years in the UK, but hadn't been affiliated with the university. And so it wasn't a doctoral program. And for various reasons in the UK, child psychotherapy was making the shift towards becoming a doctoral training program. So they asked us whether we would like to collaborate with them um, to become a, a joint doctoral training program as a collaboration between what's now the British Psychotherapy Foundation, Anna Freud and UCL. And I think what that, the big change that meant to the training was incorporating a substantial research element to the training. So all of our trainees, um, as I say, it's a public, publicly funded training. Our trainees are on placement three, three and a half days a week in a, an NHS service. And then a day a week, they come to us for the clinical and research element of the training. And I'd still say that fundamentally, it's kind of an apprenticeship style of training. It's about um, the practice and then having space to reflect on the practice, supervision, the theory, um, and we were very kind of, as you can probably imagine, a lot of people were quite cautious about adding a research element to the training. They were cautious that it was going to take the focus away from the clinical or that um, it would lead us to select different types of students who may be more research-minded but less clinically-minded. And we've been absolutely clear, I think, that we don't see it as a training in being a child psychotherapist and a researcher. That's not what we're doing. What we're saying is this is a training to be a child psychotherapist, but to be a child psychotherapist, you need a lot of different skills. You need to be able to work with parents. You need to be able to do assessment. You need to know how to work with the, the network. You need to know how to manage the counter-transference. You also need to know how to draw on research evidence. You need to know how to formulate a question about your research, about your practice. You need to know how to um, evaluate whether what you're doing is is helpful or not. So we don't see it as 
a training and a doctorate. We see it as a um, a training to be a child psychotherapist where research skills is part of what contributes to being a good clinician. I think that's very, very impressive and very impressive that um, University College in London has gone along with it. Um, I think there's been a history, hasn't there, of, I think it was Joseph Sandler who was the first uh, resident professor of psychoanalysis. He He held the first chair, I think, many years ago. He did, that's right. And then Peter Fonagy took over mm-hmm. the chair from him. Um, and I'm very proud to say I, I'm the first child psychotherapist to be a professor at UCL. And, and I think you're right, that is because there's been both a home, we have a psychoanalysis unit at UCL. So there's a home for this way of thinking. But also, um, you know, we've shown to UCL that what we produce is, is of value and of impact, um, that our training contributes to addressing the mental health need in the UK. So it goes both ways. UCL has been supportive to us, but also we have shown UCL that we have something to contribute to them as a university. Well, that's that's absolutely ideal. Um, many of your research projects are concerned with adolescence and in particular adolescent depression. And perhaps we can talk a bit about the very big study called IMPACT with which you were involved which compared the effectiveness and outcome of time-limited psychoanalytic psychotherapy with cognitive behavioural therapy. Yes, so um, so IMPACT, you're right, it was a a very large study. It was funded by the National Institute of Health Research, NIHR, and I think was the first study of psychoanalytic work with children to be funded by the NIHR, and it has... Um, it ran for about five years, the, the main study from 2011 to 2016. And it really helped to raise the profile of child psychotherapy um, in, in the UK. I mean, maybe to give some context, so prior to the IMPACT study, there we have clinical guidelines in the UK developed by a body called NICE. Um, and in the clinical guidelines for the treatment of adolescent depression, the main emphasis had been on CBT and antidepressants as the first line treatments for uh, young people with depression. But actually some colleagues at the Tavistock had done a really important uh, study um, in collaboration with partners in Europe on short-term psychoanalytic psychotherapy as a treatment for um, depressed children and adolescents led by Judith Trowell. And this had given some initial indication that a short-term psychoanalytic approach could also be effective. So when NICE were reviewing their guidelines, they saw this study. On its own, it wasn't enough for them to say we should include a psychoanalytic approach in our recommendations, but it was enough for them to say more research should be done. So because of that, we were able to apply, I say we, it was UCL, along with University of Cambridge and University of Manchester, um, we applied for this funding to get to do this very large randomized control trial, which was comparing three treatments. It was looking at short-term psychoanalytic psychotherapy, a, a sort of 28-session model, compared to a short-term CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and what was called BPI, a brief psychosocial intervention. Um, and it was a it was a s- study, it didn't take place in a lab somewhere, it took place in real child mental health services across the UK. The therapies were delivered by therapists working in those services. The young people were those who'd been referred to the service. So it was a kind of a real world study, but um, involving about, I think, 465 young people. It's um, The findings are complex, but broadly speaking, all three treatments were shown to be very, uh, to have a real impact on the lives of young people in terms of their depressive symptoms, but actually in other ways as well, in terms of levels of anxiety, their peer relationships, their overall functioning. Um, so this was really good news and that those improvements were not only shown at the end of this relatively short-term treatment, but also we did a one-year follow-up and even a year later, um, a large proportion of the young people were still doing much better. So that was good news. In terms of the comparison between the three treatments, all three were shown to be, um, there was no statistically significant difference between any of the three treatments. Um, so all were seen to be roughly equally effective and also, interestingly, equally cost-effective. So I think for the 
the psychoanalytic community, it was a bit of a glass half full, half empty, that I think some were disappointed that we hadn't been able to show that the psychoanalytic approach was more effective than these other approaches. But in as far as the other approaches were already evidence-based and they were already included in the clinical guidelines, this was clear evidence that psychoanalytic work should also be there included. So when the guidelines were revised, um, short-term psychoanalytic psychotherapy was, is now included as one of the evidence-based approaches that can be used um, when treating uh, young people with depression. That's, that's really excellent. I mean, one of the things in reading about the research on psychoanalytic or psychodynamic psychotherapy is that the, the effects are often very long-term, that um, the results or the positive impact may often be experienced or assessed over a much longer period, um, which may suggest, I don't know if, if that's a similar finding that you found something similar in the impact study or other studies. Yeah, that's right. So people sometimes talk about this as this sleeper effect, mm. um, that, that the, the effects you know may not be immediately seen, but there's a, a deeper process that may take time to, uh, to show. So that was the main reason why we had this one year follow up. Now, obviously, in the lives of, of, of teenagers, you might say one year is still too short a time. And, you know, if 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 we'd had the, the, the funding and, and the possibility, we would love to have done a three or five year follow up of the study. Um, and that wasn't possible, sadly. But even in the one year follow up, what was interesting was that um, in a way, this was demonstrated because we know that many young people who experience depression, it does recur. Um, so it, it was a very positive finding that actually improvement did continue after the end of treatment and that young people, obviously not all, but on average, the young people continue to approve, improve in that one year. What was interesting was that that wasn't only true for the psychoanalytic, that that was also found for the other two treatments. So in a way, it was three treatments seem to demonstrate a kind of sleeper effect. It, it, I know we've talked about this a bit before, but it, it seemed to me that the essential interaction and relationship with the adolescent's parents was somewhat sidelined in the study. When I tend to think, and, and I think others may as well, that it is generally at the core of the presenting problem. And you may disagree with this, but I wonder if you carried out this research again, would you do it the same way or differently, or would you involve parents more emphatically than perhaps you did in, or the group did in the impact study? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think, first of all, I, I would agree with you absolutely that in terms of uh, the role of parents and the involvement of parents, that probably has been historically underemphasized. Um, and I think to some degree, our psychoanalytic theories have been to blame for that as well, that in as far as the psychoanalytic theories historically put a lot of emphasis on adolescence as a process of separation and individuation, there was an idea that somehow we shouldn't involve parents in treatment because that would almost have a regressive pull. It would be pulling them back to something that they were developmentally moving away from. And I think our I would say our modern understanding of adolescence is very different to that. If you think of it in attachment terms, you would say that actually the parent-child relationship is just as, attachment relationship is just as important in adolescence, but it's a different kind of attachment relationship, but not less important. It just changes in terms of its quality. So I think, I mean, in the impact study, to come back to that, what we did was the model was, we tried to follow the model as it was, usually practiced in uh, child mental health services in the UK, which was that parents were involved, but they had separate meetings. So alongside the 28 sessions for young people, we had up to seven sessions for the parents. Um, we thought about, and some people would have liked to have had more sessions than that, um, but in the end, it was it, that was the decision. So approximately weekly meetings for the young person, and then a monthly monthly meetings for the parents. Um, and, and would you say that's reflected in actual practice in the NHS? Well, certainly the that was absolutely what was done in the impact study. 
And interestingly, in I mean, in the UK as elsewhere, there's huge pressures on child mental health services. And one way that that often comes is an idea that working with parents is a luxury, that to, to do child therapy and see the parents is a bit of a luxury. So in a funny way, the impact study actually supports because it says look the evidence is that when you work with the young person and the parent alongside it this is effective so i think the impact study actually helps to make the case for parent work um but it is there are huge pressures and often i think it is the parent work that gets gets lost um i mean as as i'm sure you know there are approaches like attachment-based family therapy for depressed adolescents where the whole treatment is a family-based approach and I think there are definitely values to that um the psychoanalytic model historically has been parent work alongside rather than working with the whole family together um, but I think there's, there's flexibility in how people approach that as well I know there was a longitudinal study called impact me which ran alongside the impact study in which you explore the experience of the young people their parents and the therapists involved in greater depth and I, what were the findings of this study yeah so um the impact me study was um it was as you said it was like embedded within this clinical trial and it was the part of the study that i was primarily leading on it really went back to when i did my training my research was actually qualitative and i i in my as part of my doctorate my child psychotherapy training I looked at interviews with adults who had been in psychoanalytic treatment as children about their memories of that treatment. And um, for me, I think if you don't have the perspectives of the, the young people and the parents alongside the, the numbers and the outcome measures, you're, you're losing a huge amount. So we, we managed to incorporate into this impact clinical trial impact me, impact my experience was what me stands for. And it involved us interviewing um, a large number of young people who were part of the study before and after therapy. If they gave permission, we also interviewed their therapists um, and we separately interviewed their parents as well. So that alongside all of the numbers and the outcome measures, we had a huge amount of data and, and um, interviews about their experience of therapy, their experience of getting help, um, and their experience of, of, of therapy. I think you asked me what were the main findings, and, and it was such a huge amount of data that there wasn't really one main finding. But I suppose in terms of experience of therapy, one thing that came across, and this was true of the young people who'd had CBT as well as um, the psychoanalytic work, was when you ask people about their therapy, they don't say, oh, this CBT therapist did great cognitive restructuring. They don't say, oh, the, my psychoanalytic therapist did wonderful transference interpretations. What, what they talk about is the relationship. Not. You'd hope not, wouldn't you? Quite. <laughs> but what they talk about is the relationship. You know, they talk about what kind of relationship they had to the therapist. When therapy's gone well, that, that there's something about the nature of that relationship and the quality of that relationship that has in itself been transformative um so for example one bit of work we did with one of our fantastic phd students sally o'keefe was looking at young people who dropped out of therapy which as, as you'll know a, a significant proportion of young people don't don't stay in therapy um so we looked at the the interviews with those young people who dropped out of therapy and we realized that there were actually um very clear signs of what was going on in the therapeutic relationship in the lead up to the young person dropping out of therapy but interesting when we interviewed the therapists they often weren't aware of those signs they weren't they weren't seeing what the young person was telling us was going on for them so that's made us think a lot about um you know how can we use the research to really impact on practice how can we take what we've learned there back to the training of therapists so they can better recognize some of these signs that things might be going wrong um, and think how could they address that before things reach the point where the young person drops out. Can I just ask what were, the, what according to the young people who dropped out, what was it, what were their reasons for dropping out? Or what, we're talking about the, the relationship 
um, the nature, the, the essential um, relationship between the, the patient and the therapist as being the core of, of therapeutic help and so on. So what was it that, that they felt the therapist wasn't hearing? Or Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much I could say in answer to that question. But one thing that was really interesting and important for us to understand is that actually dropout is a is an umbrella term that holds within it many different things. And there's actually, and for, for me, this was really interesting. There was a young, a group of young people who technically were called, they dropped out of therapy because they stopped going without agreement, but actually their outcomes were really good. Um, and when we looked at what was going on there, really what was happening is they were titrating in a sense, how much they needed. And they were making a decision. I've, I've got what I needed for now. And I'm going to stop going. My therapist might not agree with that, but actually I've got what I need. And if I need help again, I'll be able to come back later. And and the outcome data supported them. They that actually they had really good outcomes. There was another sorry, yes. Sorry. There was another group of young people um, who we kind of called the dissatisfied dropouts, who really um it was a very different picture. They they weren't happy with what was going on in the, the therapy. Um their therapists often weren't aware of that. They did drop out and they had poorer outcomes. So they were, in a sense, the more concerning group for us. And there were some very, I mean, some were very concrete, like um, a pattern of non-attendance in the first four sessions. If a young person had missed two sessions out of the first four, that in itself was an indicator that they were likely to drop out by the middle of treatment. So um, you know, just noticing that as a practitioner. But I think more interestingly, there was something about um, ruptures in the therapeutic relationship that the young people who went on to be what we call these dissatisfied dropouts, often from quite early in treatment, were having what, what we call alliance ruptures, you know, having experiences where they felt misunderstood or that the therapist hadn't got them. Now, this actually happened in the successful treatments as well. But the difference was in the successful treatments, the therapist identified that and addressed it. Whereas in these treatments that went on to drop out, these ruptures were happening, but the therapists weren't identifying them and therefore weren't addressing them. It, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I, I, I find the dropouts and what happened to why they dropped out and, and what happened to them very, very interesting. I mean, it also reflects something about the nature of the adolescent process of literally dropping out, dropping in to aspects of life. And it reminds me of a, of a, a, a young person that I, who I saw many, many years ago in the UK who came to see me and then would disappear, then would reappear. And he said, this therapy isn't working, um, which I, at, on, at face value, it seemed an extraordinary thing to say. And I remember discussing it with Anton Omholzer, the Tavistock, Mm -hmm. And he said, this is a very good sign because what it means is that this young man, he goes away, seems to get enough of what he needs at that moment in time, is doing quite a bit of work. And then when his own internal processing runs out and he feels he needs more, comes back to you and says, this therapy isn't working, or perhaps let's, let's talk a little bit more. So one has to be prepared, I think, in working with adolescents for rather extraordinary reactions. Um, it's it's so different from working with children and parents, of course, and, and working with adults. I mean, yeah, it is absolutely. so much part of the adolescent process. Absolutely. It, except for I would then say, you know, based on, on this research, that the question would be when that young person comes and says, this isn't working, how do we recognise when that's a sign of, the drop in, drop out. I've got what I needed for now. I'll go away and I'll come back when I need more. From this isn't working because there's something unhelpful in this experience, which if we don't address, actually we are letting that young person down. Yes, I think that's that makes perfect sense. Of course, yes. Um, you were also the chief investigator of a pilot study of internet-based mm -hmm. psychodynamic therapy for depressed teenagers, called. It's D colon OTS, DOTS. What does DOTS stand for? And what did you learn from that study? Yeah, so DOTS, so, I mean, apologies. It seems to be one of the curses of psych psychotherapy researchers that they like coming up with terrible acronyms. 
Um, so DOTS stands for Depression Online Therapy Study. Um, and this, this was a project that um, came about at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown in the UK. Um, and as, as with all around the world, we were faced by that challenge. How do you continue to provide support to young people when our services um, have to shut down? And as you know, many, many therapists respond very creatively to that by offering Skype or Zoom sessions to, to young people. But actually, we'd done um, some consultation work with, particularly with teenagers, who had really given quite a strong message that many of them didn't like working online. They didn't like Zoom therapy sessions. They didn't like um, Skype sessions. Um, so there was a bit of a, a sort of dilemma. And I'd actually been working with some colleagues in Sweden prior to this who had developed um, a, a program called IPDT, Internet-Based Psychodynamic Therapy which was an eight-week online self-guided program um, where there was no, uh, there wasn't any video sessions with the therapist, but each week, the eight weeks, there was a 30-minute text-based chat session with what's called a therapeutic support worker. So they'd been, I'd been following this work, and I honestly, I was a bit sceptical of it. Um, partly, I was a bit sceptical of internet-based therapy for the start, but also if if the relationship is at the heart of what we're doing, I sort of felt, well, how, you know, what happens to the relationship there? But we, given that we, you know, couldn't do the direct work and the young people said they weren't, many of them comfortable with the video or Skype-based sessions, we did a pilot of this internet-based program um, with the text-based chat sessions. Um, and I have to say, it was one of those things I was just really surprised by what what we found. First of all, the young people, they were a bit skeptical as they should be about joining up, but once they joined, they they stuck with it. Um, we also found that a lot of the young people who, who signed up were people who otherwise would never have accessed mental health services, not because they weren't in need, they had quite severe levels of depression, but either there weren't services available or they were hesitant to to, get, to put themselves forward to those services. And the outcomes in this pilot study, it was only a small study, but were really positive. Um, and perhaps most surprising to me, we again, we interviewed the young people at the end of the project. And the thing they talked about was still the relationship, that these text-based chat sessions, they had actually formed a very um, significant relationship, although they'd never seen um, the person who, who they were doing the chat sessions with, it had become a very important and, and transformative um, element of the program. So the, the person who was they were having the chat sessions with was a real person? It's a real person, um, but it was what we did. We we have a master's course um, at the Android, so we trained our master's students in this this work. So they weren't fully qualified uh, psychotherapists. They were sort of what we might call, they were on the way to becoming psychotherapists, but they were um, they were master's students at the time. And they, they had some knowledge of psychoanalytic work, but were not psychoanalytically trained. But we gave them some training in this approach. And again, one of the fascinating things, because it was all on chat, we actually have the transcripts of these conversations that took place. And um, one of our colleagues did a study of how the chat sessions went. And they found that the chat sessions were using psychodynamic principles. And when the psychodynamic principles were used more, this led to improvement, better improvement at the next session. So I think I'd say it was a genuinely psychodynamically informed approach. Um, and, and it really had an impact. It reached young people who otherwise we'd never have reached. Um, and you know, it's not like any of these treatments is not an answer to everything, um, but was really promising. And, and my colleagues, I've worked, carried on working with my colleagues in Sweden. We've now done two clinical trials based in Sweden and shown really good, solid evidence for the effectiveness of this approach. Do you think that's because young people communicate um, via, via chat in any event as part of their lives? And, and that that is then easier for some young people than to see a person with whom they have to engage 
Um, is is that what makes the difference? I think that's a big part of it. So, um, you know, a lot of young people, when they when they talk to us about why they wouldn't have gone to therapy before, they talked about the power dynamics of seeing, you know, sitting in the room with this expert. Who's, and the text-based work seemed to shift the dynamics, partly because, as you said, the young people were actually much more confident on text. Um, this was their media. And um, they told us in the interviews that often things that they would have found very difficult to disclose face to face with an adult, they felt more able to speak about in the text. But there was also really interesting things about, for example, how you manage affect regulation. So for example, one young person said that she used to do her text-based chat sessions um, in her bedroom with the TV on, and she would text something. And sometimes it overwhelmed her a bit too much because she was talking about things that emotionally were very highly arousing. So she would watch her TV a bit to sort of down-regulate and compose herself. And then when she down-regulated, go back to the chat and continue. So she sort of found a way to use that setting to allow herself to manage the interaction in a way that if she'd been in a room sitting face to face with a therapist, yes. I think she probably would have found just too overwhelming. So it, it's a bit as though psychotherapy has to come into everyday life. It's really meeting, you know, in the olden days in social work, they would talk about meeting the client, you know, where, where the client is at. I mean, that's really, there's very much meeting where the client is at. That's right. And and different different young people used it in different ways. And, yes. you know, um, so they, they had, in terms of locus of control, uh, which obviously is an important thing for all of us, but particularly for adolescents, it gave them more control over how to manage this, yes. um, their engagement with this. And for some of them, it led them to think, actually, now they would be ready to have a face-to-face -face therapy. Um, some, it, that was enough, and it gave them what they needed. So, you know, I don't see it as an alternative to face-to-face to -face therapy, but I think it, it offers something, at the very least, complementary. Yes. I, I see that you're working on several uh, projects at the, at, at the moment, and a number of them seem to be focused on children in care, being very different from the adolescents. And you are the chief investigator of a randomised clinical trial called Reflective Fostering, which was funded by the NIHR, which is the National Institute for Health and Care Research in the UK. Can you tell us about this programme and the research trial and, and why you've decided to focus your recent research on support for children in care. Yes, so, um, I mean, in terms of why, I, I think sort of when, I, when the impact study was coming to an end, um, I, I really thought, where would I want to go next in terms of my own research? And I suppose, from working in child mental health services, and I'm, I'm imagining it's the same in Australia, many of the children we work with are children in care, and often they are some of the children who've had the most horrific um, life, life experiences and are most in need of support. But also when I was working in CAMS, I was really struck by foster carers. Uh, just what an incredible job foster carers have, but how unsupported they are. Um, often that they get very little um, training. Or yes, it's truly reflection. shocking, actually, isn't it? How little support they get. I mean, how I little money is. they get as well. I mean, it's, it's it, actually, it, a, it's, it's a national disgrace in a number of countries, I think. I think so, in terms of, you know, the, the value of what they're doing and the, the challenge of what they're doing. And and that has, you know, there is a real crisis in, in both recruitment of foster carers and retention of foster carers in the UK for that reason, as there is elsewhere in the world. So I kind of, for all of those reasons, I felt, you know, and then if you look at, well, if you look at the research and say, do we have evidence for what is helpful and how we can best support, there are indications of things, but there's no, the, the research is fairly patchy in a way. So when you put those together, I felt there's such a clear need here. There's not a lot of high quality evidence about how to be most supportive. So I kind of felt that would be an area that I, I would 
both personally and in terms of uh, the, the public need, was really important to work on. And I think combined with that, I was very lucky working at the Anna Freud Center. I had wonderful colleagues there. And one of my colleagues um, is called Sheila Redfern. She's a, a, a clinical psychologist who, uh, like myself, has done a lot of work thinking about mentalizing and how the mentalizing approach can be used. Um, and she had developed a program called the Reflective Parenting Program. But she was, like me, interested in, in work with foster carers. So we, we managed to get a small grant together to develop this program called the Reflective Fostering Program, which is a 10-week group program for foster carers. Um, and it was another one where we did a fairly small study to begin with, just trying to sort of see how do we need to develop and adapt the program. But from the beginning, the foster carers were coming back to us and saying, this is, you know, we've been wanting something like this. This is what we've been looking for. Um, you know, they like they were foster carers sort of, even if they went on holiday, they would still rearrange their holiday to make sure they didn't miss a session. You know, you could tell that this was um, that this was landing where, where we hoped. So having done these two smaller studies, we then sought funding for a full randomized clinical trial. Um, and we were kind of delighted to get it. Um, it's, it's the largest ever clinical trial of a, a support program for foster carers. Uh, we're, uh, the target was 720 foster carers to be part of the study. And with immaculate timing, the study began the month that the pandemic began and the lockdown began. So um, obviously there was a huge job to the program had been delivered face to face. We had to adapt it so it could be delivered remotely. Um, and we're now um, just coming towards the end of um, of, of the sort of data collection phase. Of the and study. you were able and, to deliver it remotely. Yeah, you know this this was really interesting. I mean, first of all, when the pandemic began, we, we were working with a lot of local authority partners because the idea was not that we would deliver the program, but we would train people in the local authorities in the foster support services to deliver the program. And one of the things that I really like is the program is co-delivered by a social work professional and a foster carer. So it's a collaboration. So we train them to deliver it. So when the pandemic began, the first thing is I thought all of the local authorities would just say, sorry, we're so overwhelmed, we're struggling, we can't be part of a research study on top of everything else we're having to do. But actually it was the opposite. They came back to us and said, you know, now it's even more important than ever that we can uh, help to identify yes. high quality support. So the local authorities were incredible in terms of their commitment to keep this going. We did get agreement to pause the study for three months where we adapted the program to be delivered remotely and tested. We, we ran it once to sort of iron out some difficulties. And I mean, as, as always, there are pros and cons to remote delivery. In fact, Sheila Redfern and, and some of my colleagues, we've just got a paper coming out quite soon about this process of adapting the program to be delivered online. But I think there definitely were some positives. I mean, in particular, in terms of access, many foster carers live in quite remote parts of the UK. It would have been a huge commitment to travel into one of the centres to attend the programme in person. So it had, it certainly widened the access to the programme. Um, we've, we can't, you can't do exactly the same. You have to, you know, adapt to the media that you're working with. And we'll, we've not yet got the results. So I, I can't tell you yet whether it has been effective. But I know many of the foster carers who've attended the online program have become huge champions of it and are very enthusiastic about about the role it's played for them. And it, it, that's so heartening, and and what a wonderful project! It reminds me of you know many many years ago, a, a group of colleagues and myself set up a national organisation called Exploring Parenthood, and which ran workshops. I mean, we, a group of us working really in. Um, in the psychotherapy field felt that we needed to really support parents before their relationships broke down and right. people who came to these workshops would never actually have signed up for therapy but one of the interesting findings we later developed what we called a national training program and we found one of the most effective ways of of um 
delivering that, delivering continuing workshops, was to have a professional person and a parent working together, a parent right. representative, and that was the most tremendous kind of duo, uh, and, and they could be so extremely effective and then gather more people. And so we, we found that was one of the best models, actually, for training in that in yeah. that particular field. That's so right. And, and you know, it makes me sort of feel sad that rather than learning from you, we had to sort of reinvent the wheel and rediscover what you had already learned. But I agree that that co-delivery model is, is so powerful. It, it really is. Um, and, and I think one of the things in this reflective fostering program, which I don't know whether it echoes your experience, is these foster carers often come and say, you know, people have always told us you have to look after yourself, you have to look after yourself, but they've never told, shown me how I can look after myself. And I think we've, you know, we've very much in the reflective fostering program, we don't come in and teach them how to look after the children. That's not what we do. We we begin with them, them as carers. It's not therapy, but we begin with them and how they can look after themselves. Um, and when they do begin to look after themselves, um, then they become better, more available to the children in their care. Absolutely. Um, and, and more curious about the child's experience, more open to the child's I experience. assume that a lot of this work takes place in groups. It's all group-based. It's all yes. group-based. And I mean, that really speaks volumes about the effectiveness of groups and the under-usage of groups. You know, that we're, right. we're in a profession that's very sort of individually focused, but I don't think we've done enough work and understanding how powerful and, and transforming groups can be, you know, particularly yeah. in areas where parents can speak with each other and can be supported by each other. I think I think it's a, an, an amazing model of work. I agree. So, I mean, you know, when a, a parent says something like, you know, I was standing in the queue at the supermarket and my child was screaming and screaming, and everyone's looking at me thinking, what's wrong with you as a parent, you know, and and to be in a group of other foster carers who've all stood in that queue in the supermarket with the screaming child and get what that experience is. It's yes. it's I think it's very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. Um, it's fascinating to talk to you about all these different projects, but we I have a final question, which is in two parts. The first part goes to the heart of how we understand mental health, not solely in terms of deficit and, and psychopathology, but rather taking a completely different approach, which asks the question, how and why do things go right, as opposed to how and why do things go wrong? So it seems to me that now in the 21st century, we have a pretty good idea about psychopathology and its antecedents. However, how is it that many people with difficult, even traumatic histories go on to live integrated and productive lives? I think this is the great mystery that demands our attention. And I wonder what your thoughts are about this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge question. And, um, and I'm sure there's many different ways you could answer it. I suppose... And since I've been talking about research, maybe I'll, I'll sort of answer it from that perspective and go back. I mentioned that when I was training, we had um, people like Howard and Miriam Steele and Peter Fonagy and Mary Tanger working at the Anne Freud Centre. And they were working on a study at the time called the London Child Parent Study, which was looking at this question about intergenerational transmission and in particular intergenerational transmission of trauma between parents and their children. And they they were developing their ideas at the time about mentalizing reflective functioning. And they came across this really interesting finding in their study that they, they were interviewing parents who all had had very, very uh, difficult childhoods themselves, very histories of maltreatment and trauma. Um, and when they looked then at their attachment relationships with their toddlers not surprisingly quite a large proportion that had in a sense become replicated in the next generation and their children also had insecure attachments but there were a small number who despite having very severe histories of maltreatment themselves when you looked at the relationship to their child their child had very secure attachment relationships so 
in a sense, something had gone right, something had um, they had overcome. And they looked, so what was the difference between these two groups? And what they identified was a, a one difference between these two groups was what, what they came to call reflective functioning or, or mentalizing, that the parents would manage to to not repeat their histories, who actually had overcome that, that maltreatment history, but still with their own child, their child having a secure attachment to them, were better able to uh, reflect on their own experience as a child, to be able to um, be, to think about why, if it had been their own parents, why their own parents had behaved to them in that way, but able to see their own child as separate from them and be curious about their child's experiences different from their own experience. So it was something about this, what they call reflective functioning or mentalizing capacity that seemed to help these parents to break that cycle um, and make things go right. And I think that in a way was almost the start of, of, of this interest in, in a mentalization-based approach. If that is such a key capacity, how do we support that? Um, how how do we build on that strength uh, with parents, but also um, with children? So this led, as, as you may know, to to the development of the MBT work with adults with borderline personality disorder. But actually, now at, at the Anthony Centre, we've done a lot of work in adapting this approach also to working with children and parents and families. I, I mean, I, I I'm I'm aware of that research and the. Uh, the key factor around reflective function. But I think it still begs the question, how can that be promoted and how can one think of it across the community? You know, if, if we think about some of the health promotions that we have developed, which are very, very significant. I mean, it's, you know, health promotion has done more for health than in a way medicine in itself has. Mm. How about mental health lags behind so badly how can we translate that i mean I, I i don't i'm not expecting you to be able to answer that question but i i think there is something remarkable about the actually the large the significant numbers of people who are able to overcome adversity and go on to live very fruitful productive creative lives and have good relationships with their children what is it that is there some what is it that is so special in them what have they accessed is it the, the, the nice teacher the neighbor across the road i remember i think it was carl whitaker who talked about the dog next door you know child being able to connect with the fact that, that that a neighbor had a dog even though life at home was horrible but i think that i i feel that it's so important to be able to expand on this and then as a corollary to this question I wonder whether, do you think that we need to change our research methodology from an investigation about people and their problems to a style of investigation that would that helps us to understand um, uh, that we're really with people, we're really together with people about their lives as a whole? Uh, you know, in other words, could we find out more about what makes the difference with some people having a greater capacity for reflective function, despite their difficult early lives. And in a sense, would this involve trusting people to be their own investigators? Um, mm -hmm. Could there be a research project of this kind? Um, and, you know, I, I just wonder what your thoughts are about this, because I know we talk about um, evidence-based treatments and the and the requirement for this and having to fit into those requirements. But I wonder if we just think a bit laterally or out of side of the box and we look at what is actually going on in society and we start from there, would we begin to develop some different research methodologies? Yeah, no, they're really interesting questions. I think... Uh, I mean, in, in terms of my own work, I, I have primarily focused on psychological therapies. Um, I mean, the Reflective Fostering Program is a kind of public health intervention, but most of my work has been on psychological therapies. But when I think about um, our, our, our history, I mean, Anna Freud, for example, um, who obviously was one of the 
you know, pioneers of, of child psychoanalysis. Actually, she spent most of her time not in offering individual therapy to children, but doing work with schools, doing work with hospitals, uh, doing work with the legal system to say, you know, if we really want to impact on children's lives, we can only ever have a small impact inside the therapy room. But what we learn from the therapy room can be, if we can take the learning from there, we can use it to have a huge impact. So she she spent, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours just giving lectures to nursery school teachers, talking to nursery school teachers, talking to pediatricians, talking to nurses. Uh, she wrote three books about how we can transform the legal, the family law system to make it centered around the needs of the child. So I do think there's there's a strong tradition of um, translating, if we believe we've got something valuable to share, translating that but into you see, that's going setting. in one direction. Uh, you see, I think we have to go in two directions. There is the translating yeah. of what what of what happens in the consulting room, which I think is obviously very worthwhile. But I think we have to hear, we have to allow the people in the community to let us know more about what's going on for them. Um, and we have to, you know, it reminds me, I think in the Second World War, they had something called listening posts because mm. they wanted to get a picture of what was going on in the community and whether people were actually, what the, what the morale was like. We almost need that. You know, not in a creepy sort of way, of you know, Big Brother sort of way. But I wonder whether it, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking aloud. You know, it would be so interesting to have listening posts. What what is the what is the quality of of interaction? Where are people at? What are the things that they are preoccupied with? And how do they want to make changes? How can they be part of a much broader preventative, not a service, but a but it's almost like a a movement in a way yeah no you, thank you that i think you're right we're we do have something to teach we also have something to learn <laughs> and uh and listening is the foundation of that i i think um i mean you asked about research methodology and there has been a real shift in psychology you know people used to be treated as they were called subjects and you know they were it, it, the model was a like a science lab and people came in and they were subjects of your research and i think we are moving um and qualitative research has helped with this towards an idea that um that people are participants they are co-researchers um and that actually when we work with with experts by experience that's going to enrich the work we did one of the most we were talking earlier about impact me I think for me, one of the most rewarding fortunate experiences I've had was towards the end of the Impact Me study. We had a, a steering group of young people and parents, and we said to the young people, how, how, how do we share what we've learned from this study with other young people? And they said, we want to make a, a short film. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so we got in a group of um, uh, filmmaking, filmmaking colleagues who, um, and animators and we did this most amazing workshop with the young people and these filmmakers and produced this short film with facing shadows you can find it on youtube which was a, the young people telling their story about what it was like to have depression and what they thought was helpful to them and as we started making this our parent advisory group said hang on we've got a story to tell here too <laughs> what about us so we made a second film um which also on YouTube, I think it's called Journey Through the Shadows, in which the parents talked about their experience of, of being the parent of a young person with depression and, and trying to get help. And I certainly learned more from that experience than possibly any other single experience in my, my profession. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Can you just give me the name of it again? Is it the, the, so the, these sure. films are available on YouTube, and the first one is Facing Shadows. The first one, Facing Shadows. Um, and I think if you Google Facing Shadows and Anna Freud, you'd come across it. And then the, the film we made with parents is called Journey, Journey Through the Shadows. Journey Through the Shadows. Oh, fascinating. I think people will be very interested to see that. 
So, Nick, thank you so much. It's such a rich, your your world of research and, and clinical work is so rich and very exciting. And I think it will lead to even bigger and better things. So thank you so much for your time, very valuable time as a very busy person. And I think people right. will be very interested indeed in your discussion. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have a chance to come and speak to you. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.